title of the sermon this morning is Grace for the Reluctant. Jonah, chapter 1, verse 17 through chapter 2, verse 10. A friend of mine recently told me a story about a time that he was road tripping with some friends. They were all loaded into their conversion van, pumping the tunes and cruising along when they saw something walking in the middle of the road ahead of them, right down the two yellow lines. As they got closer, they, they realized that it was, a, it was a skunk. And as they got closer still, they saw that this particular skunk had a baby food jar stuck to its head. Now that's a death sentence for a skunk. The jar being stuck there, the, the skunk doesn't have like the arm angles, it doesn't have the flexibility to get that thing off. There's no way for him to eat anymore, no way for him to get sustenance. He's stuck in a death trap. He literally put his nose where it didn't belong, and now he has nothing to do but to wait for the slow, painful death of starvation and malnutrition. Now, if this were an otter or a fox or some, you know, cute little animal, they would, you know, they'd possibly have hope. People aren't as hesitant to approach a cute animal, a cute, helpless animal. But a skunk? Nobody wants to approach a skunk. And definitely not a skunk as big as this one. My friend's like, hey man, this thing, this thing was huge. It, it might be mean. It would be somewhat hard to pin down. And then, and then there's the mess. Those things are known for making a horrible, stinky mess. It's their calling card. It's what they do. And that mess, man, that stuff can stick with you for weeks. I once ran over a skunk in the dead of night with my car. This particular skunk had already been hit, so I didn't kill it. It had already been hit, but I didn't see it. It's at night, you know, you're going on something like, thump, oh, man, what was that? And then I knew exactly what it was because my car stunk for a good three days. Skunk smell doesn't go away quickly. It doesn't go away quietly. Who wants to help when they could possibly get that smell, that mess all over them? Nah, better to let the skunk die. It's getting what it deserves. It shouldn't have been rooting around in that garbage in the first place, right? The people of Nineveh are a lot like the skunk my friend saw walking down the road with a jar on its head. They are trapped, but not by a baby jar, but by their sin. Their sin separated them from God and they had no means to deal with it. They could never be good enough to get rid of it. They needed help. They needed the good news. They needed someone to remove the jar. But who wants to go to Nineveh? Nobody. Nobody wants to go to Nineveh. That place is a wreck. That place is going to get its mess. It's going to get its mess on you for sure. They are a sinful, horrible people and they deserve what they are getting. They earned it. That's how Jonah saw it anyway. The one whom God chose to send to Nineveh, but as we talked about a few weeks ago, Jonah was reluctant to that particular call. He didn't want anything to do with helping Nineveh. They were getting what they deserved. They had been rooting around and eating garbage for so long, it was their just time. Like, this is just it. This is what happens. Destruction was the price Jonah wanted them to pay for all of their bad actions, all of their bad and poor decisions. And so instead of going to Nineveh, he ran. 
He hopped on a boat headed for Tarshish because he was reluctant to believe in the sovereignty of God. But as we talked about last week, God does not give up. And so he went with Jonah in a mighty storm that threatened to sink their boat and freaked out the captain and the whole crew. And when we left last week, Jonah had just been thrown overboard. And when he hit the water, the storm calmed down and the sailors feared and worshipped this God who had control over the wind and seas. And that's where we pick up this morning. We start in Jonah chapter 1, verse 17, and then we read through Jonah 2, 10. Let us read the word of the Lord this morning. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord, his God, from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the floods surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped around my head. At the roots of the mountains, I went down to the land whose bars closed over me, upon me forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay salvation belongs to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to the fish and it vomited out Jonah upon the dry land. Thus ends the reading this morning. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word, for your word is truth. God, I pray that you would speak through your word this morning, that you would perform the miracle that feeds our souls. We pray this in your name. Amen. And so, finally, we get to the fish. This is the interaction that this story is most known for. The runaway who is thrown overboard and then swallowed by a huge fish, often referred to as a whale. Jonah's in the fish for three days, and during this time he composes a psalm, a poem. And we're going to look at that more deeply this morning. And when the three days is up, he is deposited back on dry land, vomited up by the fish. Now, typically when we think of this part of the story or when we've seen it in cartoons or VeggieTales movies or, you know, whatever, the fish comes and grabs Jonah pretty quickly after he hits the water, right? Jonah hits the water, he starts sinking a little bit, and most of the time, like, when we see it, you can, like, see the fin or whatever, the fish or the shadow in the water. It's like it's just waiting for him to, like, to, to come down and grab him. But that's not how Jonah describes it in the psalm. Jonah spends the first half of the psalm describing his descent into the ocean, But it's more than just a descent into the ocean. It's a descent into death. To Sheol, the land of the dead. Jonah sees himself, feels himself sinking into the depths under God's judgment. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the floods surrounded me. All your waves and your billows, they passed over me. All your waves and your currents, 
They wash over me, pushing me deeper, writes Jonah. He feels tangibly his separation from God. As Jonah sinks deeper and deeper, it is as though he is overwhelmed with feelings of claustrophobia. Utterly helpless, or utter helplessness grows and closes in upon him. He speaks out of the deep surrounding him and the seaweed entangling him. In verse 6, Jonah writes that he is at the roots of the mountains. And then he continues by saying, I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Both the roots or the deepest part of the mountain and the bars of the underworld are expressions of Old Testament and ancient Near Eastern imagery that points to the power of death to imprison its captives. There is no escape. Jonah is stuck. He cannot get out. He cannot save himself. Jonah may have thought that Nineveh was the skunk with the jar on its head, and then there he is, at the bottom of the ocean, beyond all means of logical rescue, walking down the road with the jar on his own head. And he has no one to blame for it but himself. He is the one who is reluctant to God's call. He is the one who heard very clearly what God called him to do, and and then he ran. He decided he didn't want to do that, and, and he ran. And in his running, he denied God's sovereignty. He thought that he could actually get away from God. He thought that he could outsmart God. He thought he could slip away into the night in the belly of a ship and thwart God's plans. He fled. He fled from the presence of God. I don't want anything to do with your plan for me was the cry of Jonah's heart. I am leaving so that you can't find me. I am fleeing your presence, God. And so there's Jonah. His running, his reluctance has left him in despair, overwhelmed by judgment and regret, trapped in the land of the dead without any hope of freeing himself. When I was in seminary in Hebrews class, we translated the whole book of Jonah from the ancient Hebrew And then we were asked to write an 18-page exegetical paper on a passage that we were assigned by the teacher. Our passage this morning are the verses that I was given. This passage, this psalm that Jonah wrote in the belly of the fish. And as I wrote that paper, as I worked through the implications of the text, there was one thought that just kept hitting me to continue the nautical theme and language, just kept washing over me like a wave. And that is the thought that I have brought up in both of the previous sermons on Jonah. And that is this. I am Jonah. To borrow a term that the kids are using these days, when I read the story of Jonah, I feel seen. I feel seen. It's me. I do this. I fail to do what I'm supposed to do, even though I know I'm supposed to do it. And I don't forget as much as I ignore. I mess things up all the time. It's me. I am Jonah. How often have I run from God's will for my life, run from his instruction and guidance that is laid out so clearly in Scripture? Run for a variety of reasons that all suit my purposes and desires over his. I don't want to do it. I don't want to do it. It's uncomfortable. I'm I'm, I'm real comfortable right here. I don't want to do what you've called me to do. I don't. Maybe I don't like those people, or or I don't understand that culture. 
Maybe I, I just like this particular sin. It's, it's comfortable for me, and, and I'm comfortable here. I don't want to stop doing the things that I want to do. Well, this goes on. The bottom line is that I am reluctant to God's call and I am reluctant to God's sovereignty because I want to believe that I can override God and do what I want. That I can avoid God and do what I want. And as I'm rooting around in the trash of my life, I get a jar stuck on my head. And now, like the Ninevites and like Jonah, I am a dirty, smelly skunk walking around with a jar on my head, helpless to remove it, trapped in my sin, stuck in my sin as I have engaged in it and fled from the presence of God as I have enjoyed the pleasures of the sinful nature and the pleasures of the flesh, trapped, waiting for death, the death that my actions have earned. It is the death that I have bought and paid for with my reluctance, my inability Follow God. Can you relate to that? Can you relate to the Ninevites? Can you relate to Jonah? Can you relate to me? Are there times in life when the crushing weight of God's judgment is overwhelming, when the sin that was so tempting leaves you empty and guilty and shamed and full of remorse and trapped? In your reluctance to let God be God, have you run from him? If that is you this morning, if you look at Jonah trapped in his pride and his sin and his reluctance and you feel seen, then I have some great news for you. God has grace on the reluctant. God has grace for the reluctant. My friend, as he was driving down the road and passed this skunk in the middle of the highway, he felt mercy for the pitiful creature, trapped in its own or by its own gluttony. And he pulled over to the side of the road and he convinced one of his friends to help. And while one of them threw a raincoat over the animal and like tried to pin, pin him down, pin the tail down and try to contain the spray as much as possible, the other took the baby food jar off of the skunk's head and the animal was free. No longer trapped, given its life back, not because of anything that it had done, but because of an outpouring of grace and mercy. And Jonah, at the moment of greatest darkness and despair, when no human action could save him, trapped at the bottom of the ocean, in death's embrace, Yahweh sent a fish. A means of grace, a tangible representation of God's power to save and God's desire to save. God sent this fish to save this reluctant prophet, to swallow him and to bring him up out of the the depths. And to bring him out of the land of the dead and to free him from the seaweed that had trapped and entangled him. And to call him back into relationship with God, to bring him back into safety. And for us, to save us from our helpless and sinful state, to take the jar off our heads, to give us life, God sent Jesus. God sent his son to pay the price that we could not. 
Like the seaweed, the seaweed that Jonah had, our sin has entangled us and trapped us at the roots of the mountain in the lands of the dead. We have no means of escape. There is nothing that we could do to rescue ourselves or to earn that rescue that we needed. We were helpless. And so God sent Jesus to be our rescuer. As I pondered the image of my friend and his friend approaching this skunk in the middle of the road with like the raincoat extended, frantically going up and and trying to come up with a plan that would allow them to free the skunk but remain unscathed themselves, I thought of how Jesus approaches our situation. He didn't come with a raincoat. He didn't come up with protection or an escape plan. Jesus came to us vulnerable. He came to us as a human. He came to us even though we were filthy, stinky, and disgusting, and repulsive to him due to all of our time spent languishing in the trash of our sin. But instead of, some, of grabbing some angels and, and teaming up on us, instead of throwing a raincoat over us so that we wouldn't get contaminated by our, or he wouldn't get contaminated by our stench, Jesus, in his infinite love and mercy, embraced us. Our God approached us helpless on the road and in his great love for us, picked us up and held us close. He more than got our stench all over him. He took our stench from us. And then he carried it to the cross and that stench, the stench of our sin was so great that God abandoned him there. Because of our stench and Jesus' acquisition of it, God forsook Jesus on that cross. And so Jesus took the penalty for our stench, for our shame, for our guilt, for our pride, for our reluctance, for our sin. And there he died in our place, covered in our filth. But he didn't stay dead. For three days later, he rose from the dead, conquering sin and death. And in so doing, he removed the jar from our head. And we were given life again, life in Christ. So that any who believe in him would not experience spiritual death, but be reconciled to God, would no longer have the stink of sin on them, but be restored to relationship with God and will spend eternity with God in heaven. Jonah, like every believer, is inconsistent, reluctant, and yet saved by the Lord, who alone is always steadfast. To reluctant Jonah, God sent a fish. And to us, reluctant sinners, God sent Jesus. He is the means of grace, the tangible representation of God's power and God's desire to save his people. Into Nineveh, God sent Jonah, not to save them, but to proclaim to them the word that saves. And to the world around us, our neighbor, our friend, our enemy, God has sent us, not to save them, but to proclaim to them the word that saves. The word of a God who met us in our shame and our reluctance 
and embraces us in our stench and filth. A God that does not wait for us to be worthy, but by His power and grace and through the faith He has given us, has declared us worthy. Has declared us forgiven, has declared us loved, has declared us His. Oh, praise the name of the God who has grace on the reluctant. Oh, praise the name of Jesus. Amen.